Welcome to Finding Proof, where we discuss all things early stage VC. We're your hosts, Thanasis and Jenny of the Proof Fund, and our goal is to get to know the best seed and early stage VCs out there. In this episode, we get to know Brandon Shelton, who is a founder and managing partner of TFX Capital, based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. TFX Capital is a veteran-led early-stage venture capital firm uniquely focused on investing in B2B tech companies started by former military leaders. Brandon, thanks for joining us today. I wanted to kick things off by asking you to tell us a little bit about TFX Capital and the fund strategy. Yeah, great. First of all, thanks. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I have an abundance of words and energy to describe what we're doing and the thesis we're trying to solve. Simply put, we are investing in domain expert, multi-founder teams that are building smart solutions to B2B and B2G technical problems across a range of industries. And very specifically, we pay a lot of attention to who are the founders? Have they worked in the industry? Have they felt the pain firsthand? Very specifically, is there someone inside the founding team who has been taught and indeed has a history of making big things happen, driving tasks, overcoming adversity, being very resilient in the face of lots of complexity and ambiguity. Because I served in the U.S. Army, my teammate Kevin was in the Marine Corps, and my family, extended family, and my extended network all have military service. I believe there's only one organization on the planet that teaches the skill set of decision-making under duress, teaching young people to uh, accomplish really big things in a resource constrained and information austere environment. And that's the U.S. military. We very specifically only invest when there's a high performing former military leader in that co-founding team. We yield the domain expertise to the founders. They almost have to teach it to us a little bit enough to be dangerous. So we look at everything from space to cyber, to logistics, to ed tech, fintech, all, all of it. Uh, so we're a journalist investor, but we believe that there's a certain percentage of those who served in the U.S. military at an early age that responded to that environment in a very specific way and then carried on those performance, continuous learning, problem-solving skill sets and muscles later on and constantly replicated that track record. So as they find themselves at 35, 45, 55 years old, starting a high-growth, high-failure-rate startup, we like our chances with them on the team. Talk to us a little bit about what makes it unique in veterans, right? What skills are unique that you like and how you identify whether somebody has those requisite skills? As a great question, as a baseline, because we serve ourselves and we know people of many generations, it's pretty interesting that most people that start their professional careers in the military started between ages 18 and 25. And that's really important because it's a very formative part of our lives. We're young, we're open to learning, we're open to process. And so when you take a 19-year-old, a 22-year-old, and you assign them an incredible amount of not only problem-solving responsibility, but also people management responsibility, it teaches a new level or new degree or assigns a new degree to the word accountability. So I think we understand that most people in the, that serve in the United States military and then leave go through a very similar environment. E each branch is different. Each team is different. Each veteran is different. So we try not to use the, a set of descriptors for all veterans. But fundamentally, we know that they've been pressure tested in lots of environments on purpose. 
and put into these high-risk environments where it's imperfect information. They have to develop their learning muscles, and then they need to learn how to communicate under that duress. Very similar to a startup, we think later on. So what we look for is what's the whole package? So when the founding team meets us, we'd rather not jump right into the pitch deck. We'd rather meet the team. Where are you from? Your origin story matters because how you were raised and what adversity you fought through as you found your way to the military, important. Why'd you join the military? What'd you do? How did you serve? Which is most important. We can translate that, whereas most investors cannot because they didn't serve. And a lot of times they're afraid to ask because they don't want to offend. Why did you choose to leave the service? Okay. What did you do next? And then just walk us through your decision cycles as you find yourself in front of us today, top of startup. We're looking for that common learning individualized and then carried forward in a commercial setting. And we're constantly changing our tuning and our diligence techniques, but we front load the people elements. So we understand, do we believe that they are operating with their heart and mind as one? And then they already exhibiting traits in the early months and years of their startup, pulling on some of those early learnings from earlier ages, and then coupling that with who they are as people and their commercial understanding. And you can see all kinds of demand signals, who's around them, right? Who are their co-founders? They're really high performing in their own. That's a good signal. Do they know their industry inside and out so they can talk to you at a strategic, operational, tactical level? Do they take feedback, but yet passionately resist in areas that they know best? So I think that is ultimately what we're trying to do. It's a bit subjective when we're first meeting them. And then as we get to formal diligence, we try to be more objective, more empirical in scoring that and measuring that. But we just know that there's a common entry point And then we just need to get to know the person, not just now and not just when they were in the military 10, 20 years ago, but literally where are you from and what's that total package? It sounds like you take a lot of time to get to know the founders before you ultimately fund them too, which makes sense. (laughs) It does. It does. So that's a conflict. We've heard quite a bit and we see it that there's a lot of founders who do extra calls with venture capital firms and they don't know where they stand. Mm -hmm. So they end up wasting their time, which is a precious resource. So coming from our tribe, we're trying to get to transparent moments of trust really fast, ask the hard questions right away, but you can't speed date these people. You need to know who they are. So I would say dating period and get to know you period where we're doing light diligence. And we tell them that up front. I don't have a timeline on this. I'm not trying to waste your time, but there's something here. But there is a defined moment when we have process for this where, okay, you pitch the partners, we're a go. Now I'm going to actually hand you a checklist and we're going to go through formal diligence. And that is time bound. And now you know where you're at, but for this irregular period up front where we're meeting, it's really important. We're also simultaneously checking our network because we probably can get to someone that they serve with or work with. And do you know this person and, and so forth? Yeah. And what was your first exposure to, to venture capital and the impetus for starting the fund? My first exposure was TFX, (laughs) not a path I would recommend. I think just starting a venture capital fund with no background in it has served me well because I I don't possess some of the biases and skews and frankly, some of the scars on my back that others do. But conversely, there's a lot of nuance, lingo, and frankly, relationships that drive the VC industry that I've had to activate. One of our investors said venture capital and private equity in his estimation is one of the only industries that he was aware of where you can only understand it by doing it. It's like a true apprenticeship. You can study it in school, you can read books, you can attend competitions and meetings, but you actually have to do it to learn it. So my first exposure was doing this. It has been a great journey so far, but I've definitely banged my head against quite a few walls so far. 
So what was the genesis for starting the fund and, and the interest in doing that? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I draw a delineation here around my pursuit of venture capital versus the thesis. For me, it was, I don't have a view on VC one way or the other. I felt the unmet needs were with this founder core. Um, and coincidentally, meeting them in a period of my career and in, in the front part of 2015, I backed into this problem where, where I was trying to help network some founders, just try to coach them a little bit. Any small business owner, they didn't have to be tech. I gravitated towards the tech folks just because of the tempo and the size of the problems that they were going after. And they would play back to me their struggles with the capital raising process, especially at the earlier stages. And once I started understanding how some of the VC firms were staffed and you know, how they were trying to either cloak their military service or just not even mention it in their deck, I, was, I said, hey, there's, there's an unmet need here. The industry machinery is not staffed with people from the military or would know what you're doing, so they can't translate it. And on the other side, you being in the founding team, based on what I understand you've done in my early meetings with you, I actually think that's a that's an X factor. The, the very fact that you've done X, Y, Z, coupled with your commercial experience should move you top of pile. It was almost like the two sides couldn't verbally explain it or see it, so they just didn't even mention it. So then when you see 10% of all small businesses are owned and run by a veteran, surely there's something entrepreneurial, having served and having a family member, I said, this is true. The one caveat was, I knew that your military pedigree was not one-to-one -one correlated with your commercial outcome. Most veterans I know talk like this inwardly. <laughs> so it was very hard. It was, as I started talking about, do we form some sort of entity, a nonprofit, angel group, something, a syndicate to help translate the background, but also pull in the, you know, the military community affinity network that sits across the United States. It's very powerful. One thing led to another, and, and, and the way it got was, who turned out to be one of our earlier investors said, the best way to do this is to go form an investment fund. That's the most painful, probably, true, but also probably the fastest way to make the biggest impact to prove the thesis. It started out as a, an investment fund on the first time I ever wrote it down, and a couple months later, it was a venture capital fund. Got it. Uh, is there a company maybe that you can use to tell the story that you're just describing about the opportunity? Is there a showcase of one of the portfolio companies and just talk us through how you met them, why you thought they were unique and why you're bullish on them? I can give you one right off the top of my head. My most recent investment with Marani out of Minneapolis, all female founder team, two founder are, are in their 50s. So they have seasoned careers. They have accomplished quite a bit. But the CEO, Ann Holder, who went to a military academy, her husband did, and most of her children are also in the military. So it's a common theme. But she started out her professional career in leading others in the military in a foreign country. That's where she had her first child. And so as she did her, her, her service period and got out and then spent 20 plus years holding various different roles at um, publicly traded companies and then ended up becoming uh, getting into medical devices, then joined Mayo Clinic as an entrepreneur in residence. So this is someone who's been around large P&Ls, lots of resources. And there's, as she jokes, it's been a long time, 25 plus years since she wore a uniform. But as she's been starting Marani over the last two years to go after the fetal health and maternal health space, she has a five, six person team. It's right back to where she was at 22 years old. She doesn't have enough money to do what she wants to do. And what I applaud her efforts of doing is that, again, this is something post-investment we also pay attention to is the veteran and the founding team. Can they orient quite a few people, quite a few organizations, quite a few resources against a common outcome? 
So get everyone bought into something bigger than themselves, which is ultimately what we're talking about here. There are great learnings that happen in the military, but also in other types of teams where you truly feel like I'm not here for the money. I'm not here for the accolades or any type of vanity measures. I'm literally here because all I want to do is solve this problem. And it unlocks tremendous learning at the individual level. And that's what she is doing right now. If you were to look at the people helping the board members now for a company that's hers that small and the problem as big as what they're trying to do, she has world-class athletes who have given up well-paying jobs to join her or help quietly on nights and weekends because they believe in solving this problem. And what is the problem that they're solving? Yeah, very specifically, Marani, they're trying to do a couple different things to get to the common outcome. But if you can accurately measure a baby, so a fetus's heart rate and vitals, if you could get it accurately, which you cannot today, the technology we all use today, even in the United States, first world country, was built in the 1970s. And it has a problem where it constantly drops heart rate signs and others. So it's very old, frankly, and uh, dumb technology. But if you could get that solved, what would happen is it would create a, a trickle effect where doctors would stop prescribing unnecessary C-sections, especially in lower income communities, especially here in the Southeast, uh, where this problem is very prominent. The United States, by the way, ranks in the bottom eight of the world next to Afghanistan on this problem in terms of uh, morbidity and mortality. So if you know about Serena Williams and you heard about her story, um, she can talk about this. So there's a lot of unnecessary cesarean sections which cause traumatic impacts to the mother, but always the physician's always you know, putting the baby over the mother, right? So best, best outcomes. Well, if you go to the root cause, it's because they just don't have accurate signals and the tech is just not caught up there. So by being a Mayo entrepreneur residence and having access to their cardiology team and, and some of their AI developers, some of this technology exists, but for adults around the heart, it's just not been oriented against fetal signs. And so that's what she's looking to connect. Let me build a better right now, a garment to pick up the sensors accurately, a garment that the, the mother can wear around, not just when they're physically in front of a doctor. So you start thinking about telehealth and 24 seven monitoring that's accurate and a labor and delivery doctor and a nurse can use it. And once I have that built and then I can then bend the proven true machine learning backed AI around heart rate variability and signals. And then, you know, ultimately get to a point where that physician can read the vitals and all the different sensor uh, outputs and get advice on what's happening. And so that that's the ultimate goal, right? Is that you're just using technology smarter to help in the moment that you need it, whether you're in delivery or you're in for a checkup or it's weeks prior to when you're in delivery. So it's a really big problem. It has a lot of money flying into it, but she's got Mayo Clinic behind her now. She's got a number of major health systems behind her. She has a SBIR grant with the National Science Foundation. She's got a lot of really great things underway, but it's, it's incredibly complex. So again, I don't think she'd be where she is, her and Kathy, unless she has this unique ability to pull all these disparate pieces worldwide against this common outcome. And I think that's rooted to being taught how to do that when she was you know, in her 20s. You talk a lot about focusing on the founders and your whole thesis for the fund is around the unique skill sets that they bring to the table being veterans. Do you think that that predisposes you to look to certain verticals where those skills are much more important and, and what would those be? Yeah, great question. We always provide a distinction around the veteran. So we're not looking to invest in companies because they have a veteran. 
The veteran is an easy label to put on someone that guarantees that they've been in that environment. It is the learning that the individual goes through that in that environment that we're looking to learn, measure, and connect to what they're doing later on in a startup. But just easy to remember as a veteran. No specific industry. There's three industries, though, that we do see, I would say, above average deal flow because they are mature ecosystems within the U.S. military, U.S. government. One would be cybersecurity. So I would argue that the world's best cybersecurity professionals work for the U.S. government, so in the intelligence community. A lot of them go from the offensive side, leave, and then now want to build defensive software for enterprises. The second would be anything in the healthcare system. I mean, the Veterans Administration, I believe, is the largest healthcare system (laughs) in the world, Um, definitely the United States. But while on active duty, the volume of medical professionals is is enormous. So you have a large density of, of people every year that are leaving the service who have advanced medical training and sometimes significantly advanced medical training. So I would say anything around healthcare. And then the third, I would say, is something new that we're paying more attention to is that is space. So the U.S. military has led all of our space efforts since day one. We just launched, I think, a year and a half ago, Space Command. So there is a ready-built network of advanced engineers, aeronautical experts who are working now in the private space to build solutions for the government, for DOD, for Department of Defense, or for folks like Blue Origin, SpaceX, and others. I would also throw in their drones. Drones were born out of the U.S. military, and so a lot of the drone technology being used on farms or delivery or whatnot, you generally will find experts who've worked on some of those programs. But no, we are a truly generalist investor. It is everything about the founders. And the last point I'll make here is as a couple of our advisors have played back to us that the type of founders that we're trying to search for and back, these mission-driven founders with these great stories and great techniques and skills, they also orient themselves on really tough problems. So if you look at Mike Murphy in Charlotte, North Carolina, he's trying to stop cheating in colleges and universities. Antonio DiSorrento, former Marine up in Washington, D.C., he thinks you shouldn't have to take out massive amounts of student loans to pay for school. You should maybe think about alternative means like income sharing agreements. And Chris Hamilton in Charleston, South Carolina, Movi, he believes that why are we using paper and pencil to move patients between healthcare facilities. There's a lot of waste and abuse in there. And ultimately it's the patient who suffers when that happens. So I tell you that because if you look across our our entire portfolio, they are on their own efforts going after really world-changing type events. It sounds like it. And so what advice do you have for military or former military founders? I get asked all the time more around, should they start a business straight out of the military or grad school, or should they work in industry? My personal belief is that you should go work commercially for a minimum of three years if you've never done that yet. So if you were an officer and then you did service and then you did grad school, you have to learn by doing, but you have to also, as a, as a veteran, undergo your own individualized transition. You need to see like on like, I was in this environment. I am now in this environment. What's the same? What's different? Pick up commercial lingo, jargon, techniques, understand how decisions get made in your industry. But that would be one. I'd say two, don't start a business because you've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I don't think that's a veteran thing. I think that's just a general idea we have. The pain is just too hard. I mean, it's just too great, especially if you're trying to lean on outside capital to get there. There's an opportunity cost as you get older. If you you have a spouse or children, or you can be making more money elsewhere, only go after a problem and start a business 
that you feel like you were put on this earth to solve. And so that's how we define mission-driven, where your heart and your mind operate as one, and it emanates. What happens is, is that it attracts people. It attracts talent, resources, investors. It's still going to be hard. You can still get down on yourself and you're still going to have a long path to probably get into your outcome, but you stand a better chance. You can last a bit longer versus, you know, this stinks. I've been doing it for two years. I'm out. I'm just going to start something else. Well, what happened to your investors? What happened to your employees? So that's what I would suggest in general, but obviously for veterans, go work commercially, get some domain, commercial domain expertise, then decide if you want to go start a business. If you do, don't just put everything you learned in the military in a suitcase under your bed. Don't pull it all back out and try to replicate a military environment. There's some sort of middle uh, that demonstrates that you've turned the page and you're now adapting as a leader into a new environment. And then call you, right? <laughs> then please call us <laughs> yeah. if, if you can help, please. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your personal background too. I mean, I know you you touched sure. on the, the impetus for the fund and everything, but would love to, to learn a little bit more about your background. So my story is pretty easy. I grew up in a rural town in Virginia to a military family. I did Army ROTC. I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to pay for college. I studied business and capital markets there, which was in hindsight kind of odd since I was wearing my uniform one day a week and they, all my classmates were going to big banks in New York. I went and became an Army infantry officer. I wanted to go to an airborne unit in Europe. So I had to go through ranger school, which I suffered mightily at, but did pass, got to Italy, met my wife in Italy. She was one of two female officers there. She was a collegiate swimmer, TC professional, and she is by far the best leader I've ever seen. Then 9-11 happened. When 9-11 happened, that changed a lot of the calculus. So I moved to become a military intelligence officer. I did another stand of training and some other stuff. I left active duty in 04 with my wife. We didn't really have an aspiration of being a 25-year dual military family. So she was from the New York City area and I went to Barclays Capital in 2004, took a very junior role. So I took a 22-year-old's role at age 28. So from 2004 to seven, I took the role. I worked my butt off. I started and finished a global MBA from Duke. And in 2007, networked my way over to Bear Stearns. At the time, I heralded investment banking shop uh, up in New York. I competed for and, and got a, a junior trading role over there. Fast forward one year to March 2008, two weeks before my, we had my first kid. I watched our bank implode and its leadership, frankly, give up on itself, which is a story for another day. I raised my hand for the transition team. I stayed on for you know six or seven more months. I saw all the Wall Street's uh, great uh, financial recession. That was fun. But the second thing I learned there was networking, which is the one thing I tell veterans all, all the time. It's the only thing I can think of in the military environment that's not taught. It's not necessarily normal or common. There's some people that do it, but it's not a skill set that's taught. Everything else is there, like on like. And there's nothing that can you can ever encounter in a commercial role that you've not been taught, except like this networking. I did it in summer and fall of 08. And when I realized and learned then, which we use at TFX, is that the military community is enormous in the United States. So the veteran community is about 18 million, but it's considered about 100 million in the United States or a sibling or parent or spouse to someone that served in the military. So they go beyond the thank you for your service. They can understand a little bit more about how you serve, which is really important. And they sit in all 50 states and all Fortune 1000 companies. And then veterans will, and that military community will do another thing is they will offer up their personal and their professional connections which I think is really awesome. And we constantly encourage our founders to make sure you're asking for that. That's how I got out of there. 2000, end of eight, I joined a startup consulting firm teaching military philosophy and practices to C-suites and startups and businesses of all shapes and sizes. And then in 2012, one of my clients in Chicago hired me and 
said, okay, you've been pointing out all these things that we need to do better. Why don't you come in house and be our first ever strategy person and actually do it from within. So I did that, built out some teams. I mean, we got after it and transformed all of our business units, expanded internationally, got them to a merger position at the end of 14, and that offered a good off-ramp. So I left and that opened the window of time to find TFX. And within probably 60 days, I backed into what I'm doing now. And just what, two or three more months after that, I was, all I was doing was trying to immerse myself in how do you build a VC business? What's going on in the tech space? Is there a there there with veteran entrepreneurship? So now we're going to shift into our four standard question segment, and we're looking forward to hearing your answers. Question one is our NVCA question. The National Venture Capital Association advocates for public policy that supports the venture community and the American entrepreneurial ecosystem. If there is one thing that you would change about the VC industry or one policy that you'd advocate for, what would it be? Great question. We're members of the NBCA and big supporters uh, for the, your listeners. The CEO is an army brat. So I think he gives us a little bit more attention than maybe we deserve given our small size. But the one thing that I've been frustrated with, and I've heard a lot of other emerging managers who generally have unique theses like we do, whether it be investing in people of color or females or immigrants or for us veterans, is that if you're not already wealthy, it's extremely hard to start a VC fund for two reasons. One, if you're already wealthy, you already most likely know lots of wealthy people. And then number two, you can forego personal income for a number of years. You don't have to live off the management fee. We've had to live off the management fee and we do so willingly because we are purpose-driven, mission-driven, but it acts as this uh, near-terminal headwind that could almost pin fund managers like myself and others and sort of the tyranny of small numbers. So my idea is I think there should be a flexible grant program to help defray some of our management fee costs. I think you should avoid paying like myself because we want, don't want to use taxpayer dollars. If it was to come from the government, taxpayer dollars for ourselves, or if it was from the larger members of the NBCA and they created a philanthropic effort there, I could see that. But I, I have a number of people that want to learn VC that would be very high performing folks for us. And they come from their military spouses and veterans. They could be people of color. It could be from, they're just non-traditional folks that we know. I can't afford them. And so if I could have one or two here say, guess what? You're going to make X for two years as paid for through this NBCA program. It's a little bit like Venture for America, if you know how they have their setup, but do it to encourage and help emerging managers get from here to there. Because we're not going to get from here to there just because of management fee. We have to perform. So I, I see this as a really safe place that the Bobby and team can advocate for. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting answer. Number two is if you weren't a VC and money wasn't a concern, what career would you have? I thought about this question and I'm going to give it its own name. I would like to be a, let me use some military jargon here. I would like to be a professional force multiplier. Force multiplier is used all the time in, in military lingo. We use it at TFX. So that's kind of one gets you many. That could be a channel partnership, a follow-on investors type thing. But for me, I'm just aware of talent, problems, businesses that if I came in with my network and my own wealth, I would like to force multiply them, take some rocks out of their packs because I think these are common sense solutions or this is a common sense problem that needs to get fixed. And that can take many different forms. But another career where you know you said money wasn't a concern. That's what I would do. I like that profession. That's a good one. <laughs> Number three is who is someone that you look up to and why? 
So I'm going to pick um, a group of people, if it's okay. So for people who know me, despite having no engineering background whatsoever, and never having worked anywhere near aeronautics or space or NASA or anything, I am a space fanboy on many, many, many levels. I have read every possible thing I could read about the 1960s, basically space race. But the people I look up to were the dozens and dozens of stories of people that participated in us landing on the moon by the end of the decade that frankly didn't have the perfect pedigree. We've seen a couple of movies come out like Hidden Figures, whatnot, African-American females, or just females in general who are doing the computations. That's what I like, that these folks got over their racism, sexism, or tribalism, or money, or whatnot. They all actually worked extremely hard from different backgrounds to you know, solve this problem in, in, in an unbelievable fashion. At every step, the, you know, the failure rates and the unknowns were extraordinary. And I think, I personally believe from my reading that it was the 60s space race that actually created Silicon Valley. It actually created much of the venture capital activity that we all live off today was you could root back 50 years ago, 60 years ago, especially in the geography of Stanford and whatnot. So for me, that's who I look up to. And anytime I can read, you know, like Gene Kranz or, you know, any of these folks, I, I, I love their stories and, and I could go on and on about it, but that's who I look up to. It's just like, wow, just shaking my head that, man, these people are on a razor's edge right? and thousands and thousands of people coming together all just with one goal, one outcome. And that's what I just found amazing. Sounds like you'd also want to be an astronaut to the answer for number two. <laughs> well, I don't know. I am, um, it's funny, I am terrified of heights. And so- uh, Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's, uh, Appreciation for it then, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And lastly, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I've heard this a number of times and I actually don't know who told it to me first, but it, it, in my head, it, and it's something that I tell myself a lot, especially in the virtual environment, it's assume positive intent. I judge people quickly. I move fast. I process information quickly. I send a lot of emails. My, my own communication style and thought process can actually make me dislike someone too fast or misperceive a comment or a text or a lack of response like the wrong way especially when you're working really hard and we're founders ourselves. And so whether it was in the military or my corporate career, or even in my family or whatnot, you just kind of catch yourself every once in a while and go, let's look at what he or she said or wrote and assume positive intent. What's a positive way that they had that, that going there. And it's really hard. I'm not great at it. It's something I'm, I think it's trying not to let become a bit of Achilles heel for myself, but if I could just remember that, you don't know how they woke up. And I hope, I hope COVID taught everyone this past 12 months to have a little bit of humility and empathy to people. I, I have kids, I have other interests, I have other things. And so you just don't know what type of day someone's had, um, what type of pressures they have or their health. And so I've had to catch myself, especially recently, to make sure that I'm grounding that. But it goes back at least 20 years that I can remember, assume positive intent in each scenario. And I think if we would all do that, I think it would take some, but not all the friction out of the system. That's probably the best advice that I, I have repeated to myself and to others. That's some great advice. Brandon, thank you for your service in the armed forces. And thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it and learned a lot. Yeah, thanks for having me. And follow us on Twitter at ProofVC or on our website at proof.vc. Thank you.